Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 93 of the Double Density Podcast with your host, Brian Angelo. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal primers. Now, first things first, Angelo, uh, it is the first episode dropping in February, so happy Lover's Month. Okay, I guess. Shortest <laughs> month of the year. Also, you know, in some ways, uh, a new year, uh, if you were to look at things in a certain scope, right? Although it's the shortest month of the year, it feels really long because it's still the dead of winter. I definitely agree with that. And but the the upside to all this is like I'm bursting with energy and emotion tonight because we have so much we need to cover this week. You popped into our show notes as I was reviewing them before we got on this call, and I saw a whole bunch of text get highlighted and then struck through, and you added other stuff. So uh, I'm curious to see where we go with this tonight. Right. So the first thing on the docket right now is a TechCrunch just released like literally like an hour ago, a story uh, entitled Facebook pays teens to install VPN that spies on them. So this is kind of an incredible kind of story. Um, so Facebook basically has been, uh, using uh, Onavo Protect, right? Um, a company that acquired a couple of years ago in order to get teens, uh, uh, not just teens, but like users 13 to 35. Um, they were paying them 20 bucks a month plus fees uh, if they referred friends to allow them basically to get root access to their uh, Android or iOS device in order to spy on them, basically. Well, Onavo isn't really being used anymore. They kind of like rebranded that because Onavo got figured out by Apple. Uh, they right. got kicked out of the App Store because... Last summer, yeah. The the irony with that app was that it it was building itself as protecting your privacy and it was doing the exact opposite. Yeah, and it's kind of incredible. So basically, like, um, this app... Uh, asked for root access, which means everything, right? It means looking at your social media messages, your emails, um, any text, uh, obviously those are text messages. Uh, anything that you have on your phone is fair game uh, to Facebook. This is you telling Facebook, of all people, of all companies, to have whatever they want that's on your phone. And they're being sneaky about it too because they're using a few different ways uh, of getting into your phone. And that's the thing. This is not a regular app install that you would normally do. This is sideloaded. So basically, it's like what companies do when they have proprietary apps within the company for you to be able to get access to something that you can't just get through the app store. Yeah. And it's, uh, so yeah, it's basically sidestepping the issue, um, in terms of like, uh, Apple policing what is on your phone. Uh, so yeah, this, this is kind of crazy that like Facebook basically rebranded itself after, um, Onava got kicked off. And so they're using the Facebook research moniker right now, um, to sideload another sort of VPN. Um, and the interesting thing is, so for Onava, what they were doing is they were using that basically as like business intelligence, right? So they figured out that the, uh, the twice the number of messages, um, were being sent on the WhatsApp uh, platform than Facebook. So they just, to acquire WhatsApp, for example, right? So there's a lot of that kind of information that's going on. Uh, yeah, so basically for 20 bucks a month, you're giving, you're telling Facebook uh, exactly what you're up to and for how long and, you know, just kind of give them carte blanche to sort of extract your data in any way possible. Most of these people getting 20 bucks a month for this have no idea what they're giving up for that 20 bucks a month. No, and that's the thing too. So Facebook was using uh, middlemen companies. Basically, these are like research firms that go out and sort of uh, sets up, uh, you know, uh, testing environments and getting uh, users uh, interested in things and, you know, sort of doing focus groups and things like that, um, but not directly revealing that it's it's Facebook, right? And the TechCrunch article goes into detail saying how they basically avoided Apple's own beta system, which is called TestFlight. You get to download an app specifically through this other app but they're limited, right? They limit it to 10,000 participants because it's a small, tight beta, and everything that goes into test flight is reviewed by Apple. 
they would never allow this. This type of thing would get... I mean, Apple makes mistakes with stuff on the App Store. We hear about it all the time. But when something's coming from a company like Facebook, they're going to look into it. Yeah, You know, just just a few years ago, Apple had integration with Twitter and Facebook directly in iOS. Right. But they got rid of it in iOS 11 because they kind of knew Facebook was getting worse and worse. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, like, this is case in point. Like... To us, the public, like just finding this out now, chances are Facebook has been aware of the situation for a while. And so my next question to you is like, now that Tim Cook and company know this, like, do you foresee a future in which there is no Facebook app on iOS devices? Like, it does it go that drastic, right? Because the thing is like, Tim Cook has said this multiple times that he wouldn't be in the same position that Mark Zuckerberg is. He uh, basically has, you know, he, they kicked off a novel protect. They're still, they just kicked off Facebook research, presumably like, you know, like, how often do you sort of like try to work your way around, uh, you know, strict guidelines and policies set in place before you and your main product, your revenue generating product, get kicked off a platform? Tim Cook really likes beating the uh, privacy drum. And even just as recently as CS, Apple had those ads talking about uh, their privacy and how oh, they were clever, giant ads about what happens at CS stays at CS and what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. Uh, the irony being that just recently they had the uh, FaceTime bug where because of something with group FaceTime, somebody could just basically eavesdrop on you right. by you even ignoring a call. Now that was fixed very quickly by Apple and it was not their intention to do that, whereas Facebook is intentionally collecting your data. That was a huge bug, really big mistake on Apple's part. They have fixed it to as soon as it happened, uh, well... Well, I mean, they turned, they turned off group FaceTime, right? So, which was the which was the problem? The thing is, is that apparently they were notified weeks ago about this. Yeah, like they, January twentieth, and they didn't fix it right away, or they weren't sure about it. I don't know, but it it spread like well, wildfire. To what I to what I understand, it is an easily reproducible problem, right? So it's not this weird technical bug that appears in like one in ten thousand devices. It's like every instance in which you want to do this, you can do this. Apparently, according to um, multiple accounts I've seen of people who've tried this out. Oh yeah, it works really easily. Actually, it's not something. Do you want to give me a call? It, well, it's it's not going to work anymore, right? Because group FaceTime is broken on right. purpose, uh, right? They they <laughs> <laughs> and maybe this is why group FaceTime took so long to come, right? It was supposed to be a main part of iOS twelve, and it didn't ship right away. Yeah, uh, I do think that it's been a very interesting week for Apple. Like beyond this, like obviously this is something that is a priority for them. They're going to fix it, but then their actual Q one twenty nineteen numbers came out today, right? So we are recording this on the 29th of January, um, and so a couple, so you know, January second and third, we uh, tampered our expectations about how much they'd be bringing home, and they were pretty much right on the mark um, in terms of their revised projections. What's interesting though, um, and to note is, uh, so basically they made eighty four point three billion, and of that is nineteen point nine seven billion in profit Q four. What I understand is that this is their second most profitable quarter ever after last year's. They made $20.1 billion in profit. Yeah, the issue was not that they weren't going to make money. It's just that they're still a successful company, right? It's not, they're not doomed. There's no problems in that. It's basically that the market demands that every year gets better and better and better and better. And that's not sustainable in the long run. Well, I mean, like, and we talked about this, like, when this story first broke, is that, like, as soon as you sort of enter the end stages of any sort of um, market penetration, then, you know, you need to shift um, your way of thinking. So the interesting thing, and we talked about this before, is that they are pivoting away from number of phones sold to active users, right? So right now they're clocking in 900 million active iPhone users. That's a lot of people using one type of phone. Uh, There's no one Android phone that can say that. No. Obviously, 
there's more people using Android devices because there's so many of them and they're so easy to come by. And that's something also that was mentioned. They've admitted now that they have to kind of reassess how they price these things and not base them solely on the US dollar and how it's doing in other markets because things have become really expensive. Even just here in Canada, the iPhone's much more expensive than you would get it in the US. Yeah. We also talked about the idea uh, when we first covered this about, you know, like the the medium income of um, someone living in China, for example, and how much they would need to save up in order to be able to buy one of these phones, right? And that's one of the bigger challenges is uh, you want to become more easily adoptable and you kind of have to draw the line in the sand in between, you know, being seen as uh, not a luxury brand, which is uh, sort of like this perception that Apple loves having and rightly so in certain ways, uh, but also like not pricing the majority of uh, your potential uh, customers out of the market so quickly that they would never try to adopt an Apple uh, a phone as their main phone. Yeah, the the median worker in China is not the type of person that is buying an iPhone in China. No, right? <laughs> well, they, not right now, right? Not until right now. Revi- you know, exactly. Whereas here in North America, yes, middle class people can not easily afford an iPhone, but you know they can put money aside for it and get it when they can. People have iPhones that are that are not rich. In, in Canada and the U.S., it's not something that's beyond the scope of uh, being able to buy if you have a middle class job. It's just they are getting they're getting to a point where, whereas before you wouldn't really flinch at saying, "Oh, I need a new phone. It's been a few years. I'll get one because it's part of my phone plan." That's kind of being done away with, and it is getting kind of hard to just walk into an Apple store and drop a grand on a phone. Yeah, it is becoming more and more difficult as there are, like, for example, we're talking about um, the Pixel 3, right, being a phone that if you had to choose a non-Apple phone, you'd probably be very interested in. It's also still kind of expensive, though. You're still going to pay eight or $900 for that thing. For sure. I mean, slightly less, but you also get a good phone out of it, a better camera, arguably, not, or not arguably, like, this is a fact. Yeah, the, the what Google's doing with that camera, which the camera itself is not exactly better than the actual camera on an iPhone. It's what... Google's able to do because they use the cloud to enhance these pictures. It's not just done on the phone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I think uh, one thing that Apple is very smart in doing is it's acknowledging a, a perhaps a misstep it has done in local markets, especially in China, where they thought there'd be more adoption, right? Because that is a market that they um, are very new to officially, as we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. But also the idea of like reframing the narrative, right? From devices sold to active users, because now uh, as you're, you know, the idea of like when you're expanding and then suddenly you kind of hit a threshold where you need to reframe the narrative, especially with the press, because the fact is you're not going to have another couple of years where there's exponentially great like iPhone adoption necessarily. No, and this is why they're touting their services, and the services did really well. $10.9 billion, my friend, this quarter. That's a lot. That's a business that anyone would be happy to have. For sure. It's it's an insane number. Um, I don't remember where I saw this. I think it was on Twitter, but someone was saying it was like, that's basically double the gross of what uh, Netflix makes. So I, you know, like I think Apple will be okay in the long run. I just think it's a question of perception, right? So the media loves to sort of look at Apple and, and sort of like tout their downfall, but it's really not a downfall at all. It's just a shifting business model that gets them into different places. And also uh, something that we're not going to touch about this week, but there's rumors of an Apple uh, gaming platform. Yeah, that was that's also relatively recent news. Apple does not do gaming though; like they're terrible at the games. For now, the Pippin. Do you ever play with the Pippin? <laughs> <laughs> no, what I'm saying is that, like, I think for now until they unveil their plans, I feel like it's going to be a much uh, a better go at it this time around. 
level density. So speaking of consoles, though, you pulled out a, uh, I guess we can call it a relic now, right? It's been almost 20 years. You pulled out a relic this weekend to show your son something. In Super Smash Brothers, Mario uses Flood. Do you remember Flood? Yeah. From Super Mario Sunshine. And my son was asking me, where did he get that thing? And he has a little Mario activity book. And there's a picture of Mario with Flood on there. And he kept pointing to this. He goes, when are we going to play this? I want to play this. Do we have it? And I told him we have it somewhere in the house. So I pulled out the old GameCube. And it still works. No problem. It doesn't look great on an LCD TV. Um, I don't have any HDMI out for a for my... <laughs> like, you can actually... There's really good videos out there on how to get good video out of a GameCube. Oh, for sure. And I have an early GameCube that had the special AV out. Uh, right. If I want to spend, I think, 200 or $300 on the Nintendo-branded uh, component cables because they didn't sell them very long and you had to buy them direct from nintendo so they're very expensive so i don't have any of those but it seems fine my son my son was happy with it and uh i played that game with myself with how time has passed between certain events and i realized we're further away from uh the gamecube now than the gamecube was from the original nes uh fun times had by all i hope the 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 reaction i got was that's a weird controller (laughs) <laughs> yeah the gamecube is one of the weirder ones right i mean like the i'd say like the one two bunch of the nintendo 64 and then the gamecube was kind of interesting the gamecube did have and still has arguably one of the most comfortable controllers though yeah i'd agree with that people still use it for smash unlike the atari jaguar my friend do you remember that with the keypad in the middle they had a weird play on the old ColecoVision controller uh which was an awful decision had by all and that is of course one of the many Many reasons why the Jaguar failed in the 90s. Um, with that being said, I want to head over to sort of like the main portion of our episode. Um, it is a New York Times article that you sent to me on the weekend that both uh, made me uh, furious, but also spoke to me in a lot of different ways. So it's an article called, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? And my friend Angelo, uh, buckle in because I have capital T thoughts about all of this. So I know this is detrimental to our podcast, but I'd really love it if everyone paused went to go check our show notes for the article, read it, and then came back. Does that make sense? I guess that makes sense. It, it will help understand, at least just skim through it. Yes, exactly. Uh, so the first couple of paragraphs have to do with a culture created um, by WeWork, which is a co-working space, which is available in multiple countries. I myself am a, a WeWork refugee. So in 2016, for the better part of a year, uh, I rented a desk from uh, WeWork because they have like different models, right? So you can rent desks in communal areas. You can rent like private offices and things like that. Um, so I wasn't part of a startup and I needed, you know, just to have a desk, which uh, actually worked out. So I kind of had a chance though to peer into the work of others. And um, so like some who are operating small startups and others who actually were working remotely for larger companies too but you know they had a team with them or whatever um so we work's motto is do what you love which is infuriating yeah so this article kind of has to do a lot with like hustle culture right the idea of like the rising grind which is a term i hate more than anything else in the world angelo and you said it in last week's episode too as a joke, yes. Yeah, and then here we are again. Here we are, yeah. Um, so something to note is that those who kind of champion hustle culture um, the most are actually like n- not doing the work themselves a lot of the time. So, for example, when I was at WeWork, I knew a few people who were um, project managers, for example, right, who had teams based remotely, um, either in like Europe or Asia, for example, and they would be the ones outputting actual work, including like coding and design work and things like that. So a lot of the people who embody a lot of like what we work champions, which is the idea of the hustle culture, were using others uh, for their own benefit, which I think is a very classist kind of move uh, unto itself. But I mean, that's kind of another different episode. This very much reminds me of the people we saw last week in the fire movies. 
right? I think it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's kind of interesting, like different localization, but actually like a very good point. Like a lot of the Bahamian workers, for example, right, were doing the rough work of setting up these tents and these installations and the stage. Meanwhile, uh, what's his name? McFarlane was just hanging out and pretending to be rich. Yeah, yeah. Uh, getting back to WeWork, though, so uh, I'm going to straight out say this. The culture surrounding WeWork is nauseating. Uh, the notion that you are your own brand and must constantly sell yourself, you know, and the thing is that they have these, like, networking events, they have talks and things like that. And this kind of notion is, like, beaten over your head continually. It becomes a mantra almost. It's kind of like this always-on mentality that you carry through. Like, your job is you. It's tiring and it's killing you, but you are your job and vice versa. It's funny because, again, I'm the opposite of this. Like, I won't even let you make stickers for our podcast. <laughs> I actually had this conversation with some coworkers about how infuriating you are, but uh, that is besides the point. There's a, there's a quote in the article talking about office space, and it talks about Peter Gibbons, and he, he's, he's perfectly me. It's not, he says, it's not that I'm lazy, it's just that I don't care. I think you're adverse to success, like any notion of success, like the idea of like starting like a Patreon or even just like the notion of stickers scares the hell out of you. Like with work. Okay. I feel like I do a decent job, but, but while I'm there, I care. I care about what I'm doing, but guess what? When I leave there, I don't think about work. Okay. Let's do, let's do a little bit of a thought experiment here. Right. Cause I kind of, I, so I think we need to differentiate what you do versus what these people do. So I would call what you do the more regular job stream, correct? Very much so. Okay, so, and then, like, let's talk about hustle culture and kind of, like, the rise and grind mentality of startups and things like that. Yeah, because I can't even fathom it, to be quite honest with you. So, I want to ask you, like, where you not to get hired where you got hired? Where do you picture yourself right now? (laughs) Wow. I have no idea. But you couldn't fathom another career right now? Like, no idea. No idea what I'd be doing. You know what? I want you to reflect on this over the next week. And next week, maybe we'll do a quick update of, like, maybe things or, you know, uh, other chances that may have come up in the interim that you could have entertained, perhaps. Does that sound good to you? I'm going to give you a little homework this week. Sure. Because I'm super fascinated. Yeah. Writer. (laughs) Dude, like, the field's open, right? Um, But getting back to the article at hand and sort of, like, I just, I quickly just want to get in some, like, WeWork bashing a little bit quicker if I can. Um, So, like, one of the interesting things that the article points out is that WeWork is indeed pushing folks to remain within their their ecosphere, right? As it is very profitable for them. Um, They're probably going to open up some real estate. You know, um, they joke about sending your kids to, like, WeLearn. Um, uh, WeWork fills a niche uh, because there's a void right now for people searching for some sense of belonging, right? It's almost a shortcut to gaining a full identity without worrying about the particulars i guess you're you're kind of separated from the real world in my way in my way of thinking do you know what i mean yeah of course you have to concentrate on exactly what you want to do and just you kind of end up with sort of tunnel vision absolutely you kind of have one way of seeing the world and that is you're your own boss and that's what you have to strive for and there's no other way around it. You're you're your own you're you're your brand. Like I hate that terminology. Again with the influencers <laughs> and you're a brand and all that stuff. It drives me crazy. So the funny thing is, like this is my next point, is that hustle culture is very obnoxious. Being your own hashtag warrior, hashtag rock star, hashtag cowboy is is tired at the end of the day. It's tiring. This type of stuff is rooted in disruption culture. Yet ironically enough, this has become the mainstream for certain people and also a very cult-like kind of way of thinking about things, which you're just saying, I think that television can be equated to a cultish kind of behavior. I'm watching a show called You right now with my right. wife, and there's a character in that that is the epitome of this type of thing. Do you want to elaborate a little bit? He's a, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but he's like a, a rich guy who's a, a terrible boyfriend 
basically has does nothing but get money from his dad and started an artisanal soda business. Yeah, soda yeah. business exactly. Another thing I kind of want to talk about too is uh, hustle culture, like in its modern form, was created in larger companies like Google, like 15, 20 years ago, um, to both increase worker productivity as well as keep workers interested um, in working at Google, right? But the broader hustle culture has borrowed from it without. Um, giving it the services and perks that it afforded to those who work for larger corporations, leading to dredging through 18 hour workdays, but like not having the masseuse on hand or whatever, you know, that Google could have or the cafeteria um, with free food, right? So it's like this weird thing where you, it is borrowed and imitated, but only to a certain degree, right? Yeah, because if you're working at Google or Apple, it's not easy. The hours are long, like you're not going to be working 35 hours weeks like I do, but you're also going to get paid a lot more than I do. And uh, ultimately, it might be more fulfilling. You're, you're a lot more specialized. And uh, Google allows people to work on their own projects on the side. There's a lot of services there. You're right. Like you mentioned, the masseuse, you have like tennis courts, you have gyms, you have free food. Uh, Apple, they actually force you to pay. But uh, Google gives you free food. And it's helpful in a way to keep you there. And I'm sure that there's uh, a pension of some kind or at least some sort of savings plan with uh, Google. You're not going to get that. Uh, in this hustle culture, which I kind of threw up a little even saying that. <laughs> um, so sort of related to all this, so sociologist Ray Oldenburg popularized the term the third place in the late 1980s. And I feel like we've talked about this before, but I feel like it's very apt right now. So the third place is a place apart from the two usual social environments you exist in, right? So the home is the first and work is second, you know, in places like cafes, the malls, bars, barbershops, and more would count as like traditional third places where people can congregate. The rise and grind mentality, though, turns work into both the second and the third place. Like you were saying, like, it sort of like forces you to stay on campus and sort of like it, it kind of melds the two, right? It becomes like a cult. Did you ever see that? Uh, that Well, I read the book, but there's also a movie called The Circle. Yes, yeah. Uh, the, the book was okay. The movie was okay, too. But it, it's just the culture of working at this company. It's, it's And it's mostly these tech companies that do this. It's You don't see this in under other industries, like in, in heavy manufacturing and stuff. You don't really see this type of mentality. I mean, yes and no, in terms of like taking on overtime, I, I definitely do think that like there are different manufacturing. Um, That's different, that though. That. That's totally different. You're not, it, it's not the same type of thing where, are we talking about culture or hours worked here? Because that's what you were saying. Yeah, I'm taking. I'm talking more like culture and hours worked all together. Because okay. I feel hours worked. There's a similar argument to be made. Yes, um, culture definitely not. No, that's the thing. Like, so you're not going to hang out with your friends at, at the pulp and paper mill. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. The notion, though, of like, you know, um, uh, hustle and grind culture, like this rise and grind culture, the notion almost seems similar to like a prosperity doctrine, right? Like if you put in your time and you work hard, then money will come to you, except most of the time it probably doesn't. Do you think these people are genuine? Do these people care this much about their work? Because I, I can't imagine caring that much. <laughs> So this leads me actually to my next point, which is kind of interesting because I, I, another thing to know is I haven't shared my notes with you. So you have no idea what else I have to say, but this kind of dovetails really nicely. You have more. Oh yeah. Trust me. <laughs> um, so the notion and the article mentions it, right? That the head of your company is a deity. Like they, they mentioned like Elon Musk, for example, right? So the idea that, um, these people are empty, um, is filled in in a pseudo-religious way by their work ethic. Yeah, and, and I work at a university, so it's not the same thing at all. It's, you know, we, we, ha we have a job to do. We want to make sure people come in, get an education, and get out with a diploma of some kind. So it, it is a very different mentality. We're, 
we're not changing the world directly, but we're hopefully preparing people to change the world, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's a ride or die mentality that exists both in startups as well as established companies, just in hustle culture in general, right? So I feel like, as you're saying, like this is a, a culture filled with like slogans and pithy motivational lines. Like when you go to WeWork, you know, they have a bunch of these kinds of different slogans on the walls and it's kind of nauseating. They're meant to motivate, but people can also be so overworked that they gain a weird sense of piety when it comes to this, right? So as organized religions sort of like fails to catch on with the younger segment of the population, they need to find a, a better sense of self. And often businesses can provide that, right? Like the idea of Elon Musk as the head of the cavalry that you are marching into war. And it's, it's often an analogy that is used in business. It's funny when you mentioned uh, the third space before uh, the one that popped into my head was church. Absolutely. And that's a continually like it's, it's one of the oldest third places, really. I would say it's, yeah, I guess it's, it's the oldest first place, third place. I mean, I mean, like I'd say like a village center or something might be the first. Yes. You know, it's all doom and gloom and I've kind of been downing this whole uh, notion. So I kind of want to do the silver lining of this all. Oh, please. So the only real upside to hustle culture is that it often forces you to undertake projects and assignments and other things that widen your skill set. So if you decide to, you know, jump back into uh, another kind of company or enter, as we were talking about before, like the regular uh, work stream, then you're at an advantage because you've had all these experiences. Oh, yeah, for sure. Over me, that would be a huge advantage. Yeah, I feel like I have like a no offense to you. I just feel like in so I've had like one foot in, one foot out, right? Um, because I've worked at, you know, the university you've worked at, but I've also worked at startups. I've worked at other, you know, different kinds of places um that allowed me to enter into different roles and undertake different things that have led me to different parts of my life. So I feel like I have a more varied skill set right now. Oh yeah, for sure. Like it's not even hands down. The final part of of this whole article, and I feel like the final segment, um, sort of resonated with me a lot, right? So uh, do what you love, right? To paraphrase from the WeWork slogan, but don't lose sight of the other things you love either. So hustle culture has destroyed many people's abilities to sit back and take in different types of art, right? So be it music or books or movies, it's robbed people of hours otherwise reserved for pursuits that make up a person, therefore making you a wholer person. And I feel like hustle culture kind of um, uh, takes away from that in that you're so singularly focused, as you were saying before, this whole tunnel vision idea um, sort of forces you to think of everything through a work lens, whereas instead of seeing yourself as a totality of a person. I don't play video games as much as I really would want to. I don't play music as much as I would really want to. So it's, there's so many things I want to be doing. I can't imagine somebody who's always on and always working, getting anything else done. Yeah. You may love what you're doing for work, but at a certain point, what you love, if it becomes work, it's not going to be something you love anymore. Absolutely. Um, so final thoughts, sort of an idea I want to do to you. I'm giving you a lot of work this week. Ugh. Um, let's play devil's advocate for a sec. Okay. Okay. Is hustle culture more fulfilling and rewarding in the end? Cause you yourself are mentioning like you like work, you know, you, you sometimes love work, but would you feel more attachment to work and more fulfillment from work if it was something that you yourself had an active hand in guiding? Maybe like if I was a rock star or a professional athlete, I don't know. Like, where do you draw the line with that? It, it's kind of. This this hustle culture mentality isn't the case for a regular office job. It's not. Right. Right. But and the thing is is that a lot of these people are turning regular office jobs and trying to make them into something they're really not. And if you're a rock star or a professional athlete, then maybe uh if you're you're changing the world by working at one of these big tech companies or a lot of the podcasters I listen to that's all they do. They're professional podcasters and they seem to really love what they're doing. And that's something I could maybe picture myself doing if I could make enough money off of it. 
I don't think I ever would, though, at this point. Also, no offense, I don't think you'd ever make the jump because of the job security you do have. Yeah, exactly. That That is that is part of it. Right. Sort of to close things out, you wanted to clown on some slogans, right? Because I had mentioned the WeWork one. So I'm kind of, I know that you have different things typed up here. So I'm kind of, uh, I want you to read them out loud for the cringe factor. Yeah, I, I did find those really funny. Like, for example, the Spotify, uh, in the article they say, you know, it's a company that lets you listen to music, but it says that its mission is to unlock the potential of human creativity. Mad libs, my friend. Like, they don't unlock anything. They they actually uh, make it harder for artists to make money from their music. I also like the tone that the author put in this one for Dropbox, uh, which he says is a company that lets you upload files and stuff. And they say their purpose is to unleash the world's creative energy by designing a more enlightened way of working. <laughs> okay, so okay, so we each have some homework this week, okay? So you need to think about your alternative like career path, right? I'm going to come up with like one or two double-density slogans that we're going to use. Oh, boy. Tech tales and paranormal primers. No, no, just like very pithy ones like this, right? Really, like okay, the Spotify one is cringy. The Dropbox one is is awful. Well, it's also like you and you know that a certain segment of their workers have that memorized for sure, gleefully. It's their screensaver. You know where the the words float around on the screen, <laughs> along with the floating with the flying toasters. I feel like the gas tank for this section is empty, my friend. So let's head over to an equally heavy paranormal section. How's that sound? Fantastic. A double density PSA. Don't you dare copy that floppy. Nor copy it, who cares? Double density. Welcome back to Double Density. And as always, we're switching gears from tech to the paranormal. So very quickly, we want to do a quick update on uh, something we talked about last week that um, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a, a stroke of luck. Synchronicity? Synchronicity, sure. So uh, I will let you have the floor, my friend. Well, it's actually, it's funny because I was watching the uh, excellent YouTube documentary. Is it only on YouTube? I've, I watched it on YouTube, Hellier. And uh, they talk about synchronicities. And we talked about Garfield last week. And I, I was thinking to myself, what happened to my first Garfield book, which was Garfield at Large? And that same day, I'm sitting at the, my desk and my wife drops it on my desk saying, hey, look, I found this in a box of books. So did she hear you record the episode? No, she had no idea. Whoa. Okay. That's a little strange. Right? Weird. Do you want to post a, we'll post a picture of the, the book, right? I assume you still have it. You haven't thrown it out. <laughs> I'm not going to just throw out the book. I don't know. Maybe you're a weird like that. No, it, it sparks joy. I love how you are Mary Condoing your life, as is everyone else, apparently. Yeah, uh, that, that, that phrase. I'd never heard it until my wife mentioned it to me because she had watched it. She, think, she's, she said, this, this is a very strange woman, but she's, she's compelling to watch. And she talks about things sparking joy. And I've been exactly. using it ever since. And now I see it everywhere. <laughs> uh, to sort of get to the meat and potatoes of the paranormal section though um so we were in a group dm we are in a group dm with our friend sam and rob and i had made mention of an old article i read about um uh, soldiers with ptsd and then ufo uh, abductees and things like that and i kind of had misremembered something that i read years ago uh, which was uh news stories about um a harvard professor coming out with a report um basically like a scientific study uh, basically explaining how uh, alien abductees suffer from PTSD a lot of times, so post-traumatic stress disorder. So we thought that this episode, we could kind of talk about like trauma and the UFO phenomenon, basically, but more specifically about alien abductees. I didn't really make the connection until you brought it up. And after going through all the tons of articles you posted and the lots of homework you gave me, <laughs> it makes so much sense. 
It's super fascinating, right? And the thing is, like, I think we need to sort of asterisk this, but like, we um, don't necessarily have all of the answers at all for sure. But there are sur- several interesting theories um, that I don't necessarily believe in per se, but they are theories that exist out there um, in the universe that I feel you are closer to prescribing to than I would. Yeah, because the articles we read, a lot of them bring this whole phenomenon back to Earth and explain it in that it's not. And probably not aliens abducting these people, but it's a it's a way of coping with traumatic events in their lives. Right. So we're going to get into sort of the particulars of that. So the the framing thing is the first article I found was an old ABC News story from 2003 mentioning how Harvard psych uh, prof Richard McNally uh, was presenting his findings at an annual meeting of the American Association for the Emancipation of Science. And he was explaining that um, alien abductees um, suffer um, the same sort of like uh, ailments and, and physical symptoms that uh, people who have post-traumatic stress disorder do, which I find kind of interesting. Um, so I then did some digging around and I found a subsequent paper he had released about people who believed that they had um, past life memories. But the first like a third of the paper was kind of like a really good summation of his alien abduction findings. Uh, so the subsequent paper is entitled Explaining Memories of Space Alien Abduction and Past Lives, colon, an Experimental uh, Psychopathology Approach by Richard Minnelli, uh, which was published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. Firstly, I need a subscription, I think, to this journal. Uh, it sounds really interesting and cool. So uh, secondly, um, so what he had done is he had basically um, gone to a uh, sort of symposium that John Mack had put together and he met all these like different kinds of people. And he got really interested in the idea of looking at people who had claimed to have been abducted by extraterrestrials as sort of like a, a next step for the sorts of research he does. Right. So he, he placed an ad in the paper. Obviously he recounts getting a lot of cranks, but also some very, very um, believable people. Right. So of these, he had picked 10 and then he had picked another 10 as a control group, people who self-reported never having uh, been abducted by ETs. So they ran similar tests on both groups and recorded the results. Uh, and so the interesting thing about this though, is that he was kind of explaining some of the, um, experiments he was doing, like stuff like they would, um, uh, do word association games or they would mention 15 words. Um, and some of them relating to each other, like they would say like candy, something else and something else. And then sometimes they would say, did I mention the word sweet at the end? Sort of like seeing if, uh, they were making uh, unconscious connections and sort of like, um, not remembering things the way they were. The, the, the skeptical viewpoint of, alien abductions is that people are not remembering things the way they should or are conflating what someone would consider normal to something that is uh, extremely abnormal when it comes to aliens taking you out of your home and running experiments on you. Again, we've talked about it, but I, I'm very much in the camp that this isn't in fact actual aliens abducting you and it's probably something more earthly, but I'm open to the idea that those uh, little gray guys with their little tiny mouths come and take you at night. Right. And we're going to kind of get into sort of that, um, belief system and sort of like explaining what's really real uh, in a little bit. But to sort of come back to the point at hand is that uh, so McNally recorded. um, So when people are talking about their experiences, he noticed like raised heart rates and um, sort of like um, sweat responses, you know, the same that you get when you're uh, nervous about something or sort of like queasy about something. Interestingly enough, he didn't see any of these people as mentally ill. No. And I don't think in most cases, uh, alien abductees, are mentally ill. It's it's that they've had an experience that feels very real to them. But what is the actual reality behind it 
these studies actually kind of bring that closer to something that's more understandable by the way we look at the universe and doesn't involve actual aliens coming and get us. Right. Um, a couple of more things to sort of note. I mean, the control uh, group and, and like the believer group is quite small. Like I don't, you know, they're 10 and 10. So I don't necessarily believe that's uh, sort of like uh personification of uh, society in general. Right. I think it's a too small of a number um, to sort of, um, accurately kind of discuss how the general population uh, very much so thinks about these things, right? Yeah, it, it, it's it's way too small to be considered uh, an exhaustive study on, on the topic. Uh, although there there were some other studies you gave me uh, that did have a lot more people involved and were a little more in depth in terms of finding what was actually going on. This one I felt was more anecdotal. Yeah, almost the way that it read was very anecdotal. It's, it's, it was a little less formal, but I dug into more the, the one from the Journal of Near-Death Studies, which is hilarious that a Journal of Near-Death Studies exists. <laughs> um, sorry, just before I forget, the last thing to note about some of McNally's research is that eight of the 10 test subjects who had said they had been abducted visited either a psychologist or a memory recovery specialist. And we're going to get into all of that uh, fun stuff in a little bit. Yeah, the, the memory recovery stuff is arguably what ends up causing people thinking they were abducted by aliens. Right. So let us get to the next article, the one that, the one that I kind of like forced upon you first. So it's entitled, Misidentified Flying Objects in an in Integrated Psychodynamic Perspective on Near-Death Experiences and UFO Abductions by Stuart Twemlow for the Journal of Near-Death Studies, as you were saying. Yeah, I didn't realize this thing existed. I, I don't even know where you, where you managed to find this, but it's, a, it's an older article, right? Yeah, it's uh, early 90s. So that doesn't seem that far away, but there's a long doesn't time change ago. anything though. No, no, it's actually a well-researched article. I was kind of cold on it at first because he seemed to have this weird aversion to like material science, and he was kind of uh, it seemed like he had an axe to grind. But towards the end, he he showed that he's he's not biased because he 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 called out, he called out David Jacobs for being very biased, which is something I completely agree with. So I guess when you agree, <laughs> when we agree, I can I can agree with you, uh, right. Um, so the interesting thing, though, that this article kind of does, uh, sorry, this this paper kind of does, is at the beginning, uh, it asks the question of like how reality is perceived, right? Like what is really real? So I'm kind of read four theories that he comes up with, or not comes up with, but kind of like identifies as the main ones, right? So what is really real, Angelo? I like that term actually because it, it makes you dig down to yes, you may think this is happening, but what did actually happen? And the fascinating thing about this is some of the stuff that we've talked about, especially with alien abductions, is kind of like um, personified or typified right here, right? So the first of the four is, first, there is a view that these phenomena are totally internal or subjective. That is, they are the products of fantasy, hallucination, delusion, or imagination. Second, there is the view that these phenomena are totally external or objective. That is, they come from other galaxies or dimensions and a sort of like a form of scientific materialism. Third, there are the mythic theories in which the story weaving quality is the reason in and of itself of the narrative myth, and there is little interest in establishing it as an objective phenomenon beyond question. Fourth, there is an integrated psychodynamic perspective which bridges and integrates the three previous positions and allows a flexibility not available in these other positions. Now, he also says um, this fourth model, which I find very interesting, holds that the assumption of an independent and discrete separation between the observer and the observed is a false position leading to misunderstanding and misinterpretation. 
the really realness of this perspective is that reality is always participatory, involving a quasi-emphatic step in which the data of experience are of a higher value than so-called objective or external data. And I feel like that's kind of the moment where you kind of got a little mad. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a mouthful there though too. Um, but basically, like to summary, uh, like sort of like give a very quick summary of what's going on here is basically what he's saying is that like we should value um, perception just as much as reality. What I took away from that article really is that the whole alien abduction phenomena is in a lot of ways the the mind's way of dealing with something horrible that happened to you. And yeah. In most cases, if not all, it's not aliens actually abducting you. Yeah, he mentions a lot of uh, abuse as a child, which would create these things. That makes a lot of sense to me. You create a memory, and uh, another reason is like these things didn't start being actual alien abductions until aliens started being part of the culture. Right. I kind of have a question that I want to save the end for you, but the idea of abduction as substitution for other trauma whose causes can be more easily uh, rooted out is very interesting. The paper makes reference to someone's, as you're saying, childhood sexual abuse being masked by thoughts of being abducted, which I thought was very interesting in terms of being able to explain, um, in some cases, not all, definitely, um, ways in which uh, we uh, shield the truth from ourselves um, through the fantastic. And this is where it becomes part of being a case of PTSD in that now, anytime you think of what happened to you, you get this other traumatic thing covering it, for, covering for it. Right. Um, so something really interesting too is that he talks about like, uh, are the mind and the body like um, uh, one? Or are they two separate entities? Right. So there's a, a dualist approach, right? So like we exist materially, but there's also a spirit. Or there's like the the monistic approach, which is just we are all just you know our bodies, our spirits are all different, and like uh, we are one um, in terms of like having that there, right? I, I think that's what I ascribe to is like, we're just one thing. We exist in tandem sort of. The thing is, if you start thinking about it too much, you kind of like spin out of control and it's like, <laughs> you start asking like the weird stoner questions. Like, do you see the same blue I see? But it could be good, right? Because I think that like, we've discussed the idea of, you know, um, the UFO phenomena being uh, a subconscious um, sort of like uh, phenomenon that's culturally understood amongst each other, right? Because the thing is that we don't fully understand the brain necessarily. Um, and I know that you're enjoying this stoner moment right here. So this paper has a lot more of a research component to it, both like um, in terms of like studies and things like that. People who report abductions, according to research, are ordinary people, right? So the only really big and marked difference, it seems, um, through uh, interviews and things like that, is that people who um, uh, report being abducted are just more prone to fantasy. And these folks are more highly hypnotizable and often have trouble differentiating in between memories and fantasies. So folks, But isn't that a big thing? Absolutely. That's what I'm saying is like the big mark difference is this. If they're more prone to fantasy and more prone to suggestion, then we can kind of reason that maybe that's why they're thinking they're seeing aliens. They're covering what happened in reality with something that didn't, that can't actually happen or isn't actually happening, but it fits their way of seeing the world more easily and they allows them to explain it again. Look, I don't want to be the guy who's saying, oh, it's definitely not happening because there are people, maybe people listening to this show right now that have had these experiences and I don't want to belittle them or anything. So 
But I, th- I do think there is a certain percentage of people, and I think you're right, who um, use this phenomenon as, a, as a, a way of masking things, right? And I, I definitely do think that, like, we are not suggesting, as you're saying, that everyone who experiences some kind of encounter um, is masking something. That is clearly definitely not the case at all, and I'm, we're going to get into a bit of that later. Um, but there is a certain segment, I think, that uses the fantastic, I was saying before, in order to protect themselves from a, a more traumatic, more explainable experience. Exactly. And it makes difficult things more easily digestible by the mind. And that's why it turns it into these things that may seem fantastical to everyone else. But for the person who has experienced whatever they have experienced, it makes it slightly easier. Although with that said, we see that through these studies that these experiences are, are anything but easy. It, it, it makes me think back to the Ryan Sprague book that we talked about on, uh, on the UFO book club with, with Rob and Sam the experiences that by those people are are horrifying and absolutely stayed with them for a long time. And we can't explain what it was. Uh, you know, I, I think I always think back to the one with the mother and the daughter and that UFO they saw in the sky with the sky, like almost tearing in half. That was right. a really creepy experience. And absolutely. Uh, who knows what they saw? If it was that, if it was that, then like I, I'm going to have to go curl up in a ball, but what what is it that caused them to have that experience? Right. So here's an interesting statistic for you from um, the paper. So it is saying that 95% of people say who've had a UFO abduction say it is a negative experience. Yeah, and then there are those that would want to have it again, which really blew my mind. Yeah. Um, so something, uh, very interesting to, to sort of kind of unpack, right. Is the idea of the classic abduction case, right? Like you get taken in the night, right? You get put on a saucer. Sometimes they show you around, sometimes they don't, but there's all for better or for worse. And in the majority of, of cases reported here in this instance, not necessarily saying globally, but they're saying there's always that clinical component to it. Yeah. There's a really good explanation for that, uh, according to a Scientific American article you gave me. So it's a Scientific American article by Anne. Don't make me say her last name. We're not going to do this. I'm going to butcher it. But it clearly states that a 2008 study which suggested that what is known as accidental awareness under general anesthesia, um, so it's the concept in which a patient awakens on the table during surgery, um, may in fact relate to the idea of why people have visions of alien abductions or feel like they've lived one. And they connected this to Barney Hill and how he reacted when he was uh, under hypnosis to his abduction, which if you're listening to this, you might know the case well, but he freaked out. Yeah. So when he was regressed, like he was hypnotized, right? He was put under. um, And then he very clearly had a negative experience and didn't want to talk about it. And just literally, like if you listen to the tape, it is horrifying. And he had surgery when he, uh, years earlier, and they're relating it to his general anesthesia and maybe becoming uh, aware during it. The, the The problem I have with this, and let me put on my non-skeptic hat, is why did Betty Hill experience something similar? Like, did she have surgery? Like, it was it like a weird connected experience? Or was she just going along with him? I don't understand. As far as I know, she hadn't gone through any major surgery that would have placed her in that way. I could be wrong. I've I've looked it up. I didn't find anything which doesn't necessarily mean that it is not the case. And if someone knows, by all means, please double density podcast at gmail.com will let us know. 
But it's kind of an interesting kind of trait, right? Where they, they're kind of reducing every single sort of uh, UFO abduction experience to this, to the idea that um, uh, due to the fact that you are wearing during a medical procedure, there's some kind of like psychic wound that almost happens to you that you carry forward and your brain tries to explain it through this kind of phenomenon, right? So over 40% of patients studied for this report experienced moderate to severe psycholo- uh, psychological harm with some even uh, exhibiting post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, and I, I do have a problem when uh, you try to reduce this phenomenon to one explanation. You can't. There's multiple explanations to everything. Multiple things coalesce into this one way uh, of people coping. And it's not, other people may cope in different ways. It's just that if somebody has heard of alien abductions or whatever, they may cope with stressful experiences in this way. What I find interesting, though, is that the amount of people who perhaps didn't know what an alien experience was, and I feel like that's kind of like the unaccounted for or the sort of like the X factor and all this, people who never would have perceived of this and then they have this experience, they suffer from PTSD, but there's no explanation as to why they would suffer this because they've never been put under, they've never thought of the concept of aliens before, right? And it's kind of like this weird thing where for sure, perhaps some of this, as we we're saying before, is pure trauma. And, and there's such a thing called trauma memory, right? So like, you know, uh, the perception of pain, the memory memory of pain, right? So if you, so for example, like you and I as like, uh, uh, males, um, I don't know about you, but I have been kicked in the net of the region before. Yeah. I have, I have, I've had small children. They, they do that all the time by accident and it's not pleasant. Right. So the idea of that, if I were to talk to you about it, like you have that memory of pain. Yeah. I'm actually feeling it right now. Thanks, Brian. Well, and I mean, that is something that people feel, right? Um, this article from uh, Scientific American also talks about the idea of recovered memories, but not in the way in which we talk about it in ufology necessarily, but also literally recovered memories sort of reconstituted in order for it to make sense in our brains. Uh, Twemlow in his article kind of uh, went after uh, David Jacobs for this sort of reason and that how Jacobs always kind of wondered, well, how could these people all have had the same experience? But he kind of pages it as... Jacob's kind of almost implanting it because he was extraordinarily biased and he talked about how biased he was and how it's important to like kind of stand back from it and not show your bias. And he's, he goes really far in this article to kind of point out that he's, he's trying not to be in either camp of being like on the fantastical side or the totally material science side of mm-hmm. it. He wants to understand what's happening. And although he doesn't think it's anything out of this world, he he doesn't completely close off to that. It's just, it's hard for him with all the evidence he has to bring it to that level. And he's more along the lines of thinking it is something that is effective in the brain that kind of brings it all to one place. Yeah, the paper also mentions the very interesting idea that the person on the other side of the couch often brings their own baggage uh, to sessions with patients, right? Um, and he literally uses the word narcissism, which I thought was very interesting in terms of talking about a psychological approach. Um, so, and like how that allows them to sort of like figure out how to uh, go about a course of action, which I think is very, very important, right? And I do think that the idea of bias is very, very significant, right? So um, a lot of the times, as we we're saying originally from the ABC article, is that eight out of 10 visit either a psychologist or some kind of regression expert, right? So there is a matter of hypnosis. And as um, this newer paper was saying, or not newer, but the second paper we talked about, the Twemlow one, the, the idea is that these people are highly suggestible and highly hypnotic. Well, look, my, my final actual takeaway from everything here is that if something is frightening to you and it's easily going to stay with you uh, no matter what, 
and in some form. And we can agree that if, if somebody, whatever paranormal experience people have, it can be classified as scary and traumatic, right? Because like whether you see a ghost or a Bigfoot or a chupacabra or a UFO or whatever, these are things that are completely outside the norm. And whether it was something else, like let's say you think you saw a Bigfoot, but you saw a bear attacking you and you kind of regress that memory to make it into like a, you seeing a Bigfoot, then so be it. But it was an experience, a, a scary experience nonetheless. And that's why paranormal stuff is, is scary. Right. Uh, you know, like it is really real to you. So therefore exactly. it's really real, yeah. um, which I find is a very interesting argument. Um, so kind of a takeaway from this and kind of something that I want to say for the end. Um, so Given all of this, given the fact that Scientific American has kind of, quote unquote, solved um, the alien abduction issue, and I'm kind of, you know, uh, using this sarcastically, is the phenomena of UFO abduction a modern one? You know, because I would definitely say no, right? Um, and so, like, in the article, they're saying, like, oh, perhaps we'll end up seeing less mentions of, you know, alien abductions if we switch anesthesia protocols. I'd imagine, you know, this this type of, of abduction, this type of behavior has happened before. Like, th- this is a century centuries old kind of thing too, right? Um, and I mean, just at the base, right? Um, so like Charles Fort, for example, in the early 20s had mentioned that he surmises that extraterrestrial beings probably kidnapped humans um, at some point, right? And he, you know, uh, probably didn't have uh, anesthesia flowing through his uh, uh, blood as he was writing that. He didn't necessarily talk about himself. But there's a, there's a ton of evidence that sort of like looks before where we've been at in terms of anesthesia um, and, uh, you know, trauma memory and things like that in order to better um, categorize what exactly happens, right? So I feel like there's a way longer history that this article ignores. Oh, absolutely. It's it's just cherry-picking certain things to to explain and fit into their, their hypothesis. And for sure, I would say that it can account for some percentage of what people experience as alien abductions, but it's not everything it's like a totality yeah. like totally not again like i've had uh, dreams of being abducted by aliens or whatever but it was because i was having sleep paralysis or uh it's what they made me believe and i was actually abducted by aliens who knows either or either or i doubt it though i like for me but, okay so here's a question for you okay right because you were a highly skeptical person right so you've painted your dreams as just that but other people who've encountered sleep paralysis have also claimed um, alien reduction um, stories and things like that. But perhaps they were more open to the notion of it, less um, invested in it, don't know it nearly as much, right? So for them, that may be they're really real. Exactly. And this is where it comes down to the, the study that found that a lot of people that experienced alien abductions were also highly prone to fantasy. Where I'm not, they were, and that's why maybe they explained it that way. And... uh I'm hoping I'm right and they're wrong because I'm hoping that I didn't get abducted by aliens. <laughs> I don't think it's the case in your case, but I mean, like what you're saying, like, and we keep returning to this, like, this is not the totality of every UFO abductee out there, right? We're just talking about some of the research that's come up in general and um, sort of thrown some ideas out there in terms of like what it could be. I don't necessarily prescribe, um, and as I was explaining, like the UFO abduction phenomenon uh, dates you know, decades, centuries old versus like this very new idea of like the way in which we use certain anesthesia um, and the way that our body responds to it and the way that like we are uh, going through waking trauma um, in during procedures uh, sort of like points to all of it. I don't think that's true at all. And there's also like, this is just one sort of like type of um, a way in which we sort of explore UFO cases versus the physical evidence that's out there outside of our bodies right there. Cause there's a whole other bunch of that. Yeah, and look, our, our friend Rob has mentioned many times that 
it's not always been gray aliens. Like the gray aliens are actually a much more recent uh, addition to the stable of aliens out there. Before that, it was also like the incubus and succubus, right? Like that was how they explained certain things. So it just depends on the culture as well. Who knows what is actually happening? I'm, again, very much of the opinion that this is all psychological in one way or another. It's either a way of protecting ourselves from really horrible things that happen to us uh, by slightly less horrible things, I guess, or uh, it's actual aliens, but it's probably not aliens. <laughs> I like how you're kind of hedging your bets there. I'm, and I'm more of the aliens, just based on the fact, like the amount of like physical evidence out there. But I also have, we've surmised different kinds of things. Right, like the, I'm, I'm a big fan of thinking about how maybe this is a shared sort of subconscious um, collective ideal, um, a way in which we sort of uh, are able to talk about um, things that are literally foreign to us human beings. I do feel like this uh, may be a good place to end episode 93 of the Double Density Podcast, though. Yeah. Anyways, I, we would love to hear your thoughts on trauma and UFO and uh, alien abduction culture. You can go ahead and email us at, uh, you know, doubledensitypodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us, double underscore density. You can also hit up doubledensity.net. Click on the contact button. Let us know your thoughts. We would love to hear about what you think about this. Take the time, everyone. We This is sort of like a research-heavy episode, so we have a ton of links in the show notes for you guys to peruse because we'd love to hear your own thoughts. You know, take a look. See what um, other people who have spent time studying this have to say. Maybe rent a space at WeWork and uh, take the time and look at all these articles. Uh, don't do that. Don't hate yourself. Uh, hustle and grind, Angelo. Uh, you know, tune in as uh, next week we go exploring the skunk ape with uh, the mythical swamp thing creature. Angelo, I will see you next week, my friend. Skunk ape again? Always. It is my undying, uh, most adoring kind of cryptid, and I want to hug it. All right. It, it smells bad, though, but I want to hug it. See you, Brian. <laughs> Bye, Angelo.